0: Hey, recording. Hi, everybody. Shmuel Shoham for the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Mike Eisen, who's professor of medicine at Northwestern University. He has served as the director of that university's Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute Center for Clinical Research. His focus research-wise has been on viral infections in transplant recipients with groundbreaking work on CMV, RSV, adenovirus, norovirus, SARS, of course, and influenza, where he's been a key part of important trials looking at new agents. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Transplant Infectious Diseases, and he will soon be taking on a new role at NIH. With that,
1: uh, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your uh, new upcoming role at NIH. Yeah. So at NIH, I will be the respiratory disease branch chief within the DMID group, the Diagnostic Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. It's a tongue twister um, within NIAID. So in that role, I'm going to be focused on the external facing grant programs related to all of the respiratory pathogens. So flu, 19 TB and traditional respiratory bacteria. So it's a, you know, a great opportunity to lead the research efforts nationally uh, for things that I'm very passionate about. It also mean learning about a lot of things like TB that I haven't spent much time on, um, but there's also some really cool things that are going on, universal flu vaccine, similar efforts for COVID-19 and coronavirus vaccines. And then, you know, I think that there'll be a lot of focus in this, uh, in part, I think, because of this new pathogen we're all still struggling with, SARS-CoV-2, and the potential of future pandemics, many of which are going to be respiratory in nature. So really excited to be moving into that new position.
0: That's great. It's all fun and games until it involves the lungs, and uh, because we do need them.
1: Yes, that is very, very true.
0: Now, when uh, when I was up and coming in uh, medicine, it, it was like, oh, it's just a virus, and then things really changed to say, well, it's not just a virus, it depends on the virus, and some viruses. In Most people are going to be uh, a nuisance, but some viruses in immunocompromised patients and then increasingly recognized in older patients are much more than a nuisance and can be quite dangerous. How's your journey been looking at the changing uh, approach to viruses?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I will say, you know, I think I was like you. When I started my ID fellowship at the University of Virginia, you come and meet with all of the faculty. So I was interested in transplant ID. So I had definitely some people that I thought would be the mentors that I predicted before that day. And then I met with a number of different members of the faculty, and I had my meeting with Fred Hayden, who focused on influenza. And kind of like you, I was like, I've gotten the flu. I I did fine. Really, we don't need a lot of research on that. But talking with him about the flu and the fact that he had a a really cool uh, research uh, study to look at immunocompromised mice and how different drugs affected them clinically, immunologically, and uh, in terms of emergence of resistance was really fascinating. And so I decided to uh, focus on the flu during my fellowship, expecting to pivot to something else. But what I quickly learned was the impact that this virus has on selected populations. Older adults with underlying lung disease, and of course our immunocompromised patient population, they don't just get the flu. They get really sick, they get hospitalized. They may have to take medicines where you and I might recover pretty quickly. And really, I recognized how much need there was for clinical research. When I finished my fellowship and moved up to Boston, we continued that work and did the first study looking at the efficacy of oseltamivir in the lung transplant population. Uh, And then when I moved to Northwestern, I really, again, continued to focus on respiratory viruses Initially, we did a big international study looking at oseltamivir for seasonal prophylaxis that uh, proved to be very effective and something that we now use as part of clinical care. And then I started looking at respiratory viruses in our hospitalized population. And that led to a number of different projects. Some epi studies that we've done over the years, we're just getting ready to publish our 10-year experience of this, really highlighting the significant impact both in terms of morbidity, but also in terms of mortality to patients for a range of respiratory viruses, not just flu, RSV, and other respiratory pathogens. We also were involved with the development of a number of different antivirals, baramavir and and We've done a number of studies with other drugs that didn't make it to the endpoints that they had hoped. But in the process, I also learned a lot about endpoint development. Something I know we've talked a lot about in you know, mm-hmm, nineteen. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, a- as we've seen with the pandemic, identifying what's the right endpoint to use for these clinical studies, particularly patients that are really sick, is quite a challenge. And some of the work that we did early on actually led to the establishment of the ordinal scale for hospitalized flu and, of course, COVID nineteen studies and alike. The other thing that we've been working on recently have been vaccines. And, you know, I'm really lucky to work with Natasha Alassa uh, on a couple of studies looking to define the optimal protection. And then importantly, are there predictors that we can use to identify patients that aren't going to respond to vaccines um, related to influenza? We've done work with your group looking at 19 vaccine uh, in the immunocompromised population. And I'm excited we'll be presenting the results hopefully at ID Week of what I hope will be our first RSV vaccine for the elderly adults. And so being able to help patients in terms of new therapeutics and new vaccines and moving what we use as vaccines forward for our selected populations Mm -hmm. has really been an exciting endeavor over the last 17, 20 years.
0: Amazing! Amazing. I uh, I think that the points that you bring about endpoints are, and in general, clinical trials have advanced so much in that it seemed like it used to be okay. Let's uh, do something because it seems like a good idea. Where and that's where you come up with two weeks of therapy or one week of therapy. To so now, that's something that's much more sophisticated in terms of entry criteria, intervention, and endpoint that. It, even at the development of the study, putting a lot of work
1: into that, uh, how have you seen that change? Yeah, I think it's you know the developing endpoints, developing inclusion and exclusion criteria is really a challenge. And you know, I think that what I've learned over my career is, Getting data and looking at that data is probably the best to inform us what's the best approach. And we're very lucky, for example, with flu, with some modeling work that we did with an interagency group, including BARDA, NIH, FDA, CDC, and then a couple of academic collaborators, where we looked at, for example, our Northwestern data and modeled a bunch of different study inclusion-exclusion criteria to best understand How if you have a much more refined population that is most likely to benefit from therapy, you may have a study that's more likely to give you a clinical result, but it may be impossible to enroll. So, for example, if you use the National Early Warning Scoring System to bin patients that are coming into a flu study... If you have a really high level, you're going to either need to include, have the study going for several seasons or include a huge number of sites to enroll. Whereas if you open things up a little bit further, you will be able to enroll in that time period, but you'll have to tweak your estimates for efficacy. And so I think for me, the biggest thing that I've learned is developing data so that you can model what you're going to see. Recognizing model is just that you may not get into where you are. I think the other thing in terms of endpoints is that we need to be thinking about endpoints as something that changes. And again, I think the experience with the COVID-19 really has changed how we think of endpoints. If you think about early in the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of focus on keeping people from dying. And that's well, that's still always going to be a priority when you have a sizable percent of the Infected population dying—that's a very reasonable endpoint that you can actually power studies around. Mm-hmm. But we're in a different phase now. For example, we've got a highly vaccinated population. You've got a variant that seems to be a little bit less severe in terms of disease in most, not all, populations. And how do we think about and pivot these endpoints? Uh, you know, if you were to design a study today looking at a new antiviral for outpatients with a, a mortality endpoint. You need tens of thousands of patients to get to that endpoint. And I think, again, looking at what most providers are, how they're using the currently available antivirals, it's not really to keep people from getting hospitalized or dying. It's to get them feeling better. And do we need to be, uh, again, changing the way that we think about endpoints over time. And even within that severely ill population, I think... We have to probably do more homework. I think our understanding of pathogenesis and immune responses for all of these respiratory viruses needs to be studied better because we oftentimes will do studies of hospitalized influenza or hospitalized COVID-19. But we know someone who's uh, fully vaccinated on the floor has a very different trajectory than an immunocompromised, unvaccinated patient that's on high oxygen when they come into the hospital. And so I think we need to get more sophisticated, both in identifying who the patients are when they're enrolled, but then, you know, what are our goals of proving efficacy? And then I think the last thing that I've learned uh, throughout this is, while we may have great ideas about what would be reasonable endpoints or study design methodology, We really do need to work very closely with regulatory partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we think something is a reasonable endpoint, but FDA does not, the drug isn't going to get approved. And so I think we Mm -hmm. need to be thinking more clearly, how do we engage with the regulators and how do we harmonize the the regulatory approach? The European approach in some regards is uh, very different from the American approach. I think the best example of this is IVs and Amivir approved in Europe. Not even available in the United States because of very divergent regulatory uh, approaches. So I think we do need to be thinking about how we engage and work Mm -hmm. as partners in designing trials and developing targets for endpoints or clinical studies.
0: Well, I think in your new job, you're going to be both figuratively and and literally across the street from the FDA colleagues. So hopefully uh, you'll have an opportunity to uh, help bridge the gap.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's one of the things that I'm hoping to do, you know, having the opportunity to move into government from outside. Hopefully there'll be opportunities to, to collaborate. It takes partnerships, so uh, it will require more than just me. But I think it's an opportunity to to, to grow things. And I think even on the international front, how can we be thinking about things across multiple places and even thinking about how can we collaborate with, for example, WHO, Part of the platform that, that I'll be responsible for is TB. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, while advances will help patients here in the United States, the real bulk of benefit is going to be outside the United States. And so how do we work with international regulators so that these therapies that are developed and are very effective um, mm-hmm. are accessible to those patients as well?
0: So in terms of endpoints and entry criteria, for example, but especially uh, endpoint, the rousing successes in infectious diseases over my career have been in HIV and hepatitis C. And that is, uh, in my mind, largely driven by the fact that there were surrogate endpoints that could be used, CD4 count, viral load, hepatitis C, viral load, and, and then using those to help with the study design. How does the future of that look in respiratory viral
1: infections? Well, I think it's going to take some creativity. I think I, I've been a long-term proponent of using virology as an endpoint, um, mm-hmm. but I think as we're seeing, particularly for some viruses like SARS-CoV-2, I'm not sure that endpoint is going to be as useful. And there is definitely a disconnect in the course of disease because once you get later, the virus may be less important than the immunologic response. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I do you know wonder if we need to be thinking about other endpoints to think about, you know what surprises me a lot about many of the studies that, that have been done. We've seen clinical responses, we've seen virology. We haven't seen that much in terms of immunologic responses. Mm-hmm. how some of our therapies that we think are modulating those immune responses are actually changing Mm -hmm. that this is again i think important not only up front you know i i really do think that nih uh, scale is how we define how we bucket patients but again Mm -hmm. we've seen we all have seen patients that are on the floor on no oxygen that progress Mm -hmm. uh, and patients that basically you know get better without much in the way of intervention Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something different about those patients. And so understanding what markers predict, who's going to progress, who's not, even if it's not at one time point, maybe at serial time points that we watch, I think defining those are going to be very helpful. And not only will they help us refine our trials, they may be a circuit endpoints. And I think this is going to be particularly important as there are trials that are either launching or being developed are using immune modulators for flu and RSV. And the question is, what are they doing? You know, And I do worry because not only do they risk modulating immune responses, they can also flip the other way and uh, mm-hmm. increase uh, uh, viral replication. And again, I think we have to be very careful as we apply lessons from COVID-19 because what we did recognize is that COVID-19 truly does have this biphasic illness. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's totally true for some of the other respiratory viruses. And so mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. use the same paradigm. We not may not be as successful. I do think that there's enough questions that we need to answer those questions through clinical trials. But the question is, are we going to be collecting the right specimens to, uh, you know, develop the appropriate endpoints and uh, markers. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. As one of my uh, guiding lights, Stephen Covey says, nothing fails like success. If you have a lot of, uh, if you have two kids and something really worked with the first kid, it doesn't mean it's going to work with the second kid. You can learn lessons, but you really need to uh, look at the situation in front of you, not the last virus that you were dealing with.
1: I totally agree.
0: In terms of, um, of, some of the uh, emerging problems. You've mentioned RSV. I have a case I'm going to present to you that uh, is with another virus, but tell us what you can about the RSV vaccine that
1: you're working on. So th- this is a vaccine that's been developed by GSK. And so it's clearly in the public purview. I can't really talk much about the findings of the study. You know, there's definitely stuff that is in investor reports publicly that suggests that there is a clinical response and uh, immunologic response. I think it's actually, though, one of many vaccines that are on the cusp of uh, being approved. There's a handful of the vaccines that are in phase three trials currently. And I think that it's something that we're going to really benefit from. Most of these studies are being looked at in three different populations. both mm-hmm. adults, that's clearly where the significant impact is in terms of a mortality and hospitalization risk. But then there's studies also looking at kids, anyone that has a kid knows RSV is a nightmare. It is one of the leading causes of hospitalization for very young uh, kids, but also pregnant women, because uh, as we learned with flu, protecting them also protects the unborn child and therefore um, may have benefit. I think as these vaccines come online, though, it's going to also challenge us to do and push our pharma uh, partners to do the right studies to understand special populations. You know, I think none of us were surprised that uh, COVID vaccines weren't as effective in terms of immunogenicity in our transplant population. And so understanding how these vaccines work in that population is going to be critically important because we've all seen really challenging cases of RSV and other respiratory viruses in our transplant population. I also hope that the RSV vaccines really stimulate pharma um, there's been per influenza virus other respiratory viral vaccines that have been kind of making progress but really nothing has uh markedly moved forward and hopefully seeing hopefully the success of uh rsv vaccine prompt other companies to to start working in that vein.
0: Yeah. Very exciting times for uh, respiratory viral infections, and hopefully we'll have continued uh, interest from pharma. All right. Here's a case, and this is not an actual person. This is a composite of cases uh, for educational purposes. 34-year-old woman with history of acute myelogenous leukemia for which she underwent a non-myeloablative haploidentical stem cell transplant in January of 22. Our post-transplant course has been significant for receipt of cyclophosphamide in the immediate post-transplant period, development of fevers and the setting of neutropenia for which you received cefepime. The fevers had resolved and the neutropenia has persisted, and then you're at decision point number one in that there is some movement towards stopping antibiotics before the resolution of neutropenia so resolution of fever yes resolution of neutropenia no switching them over to say moxifloxacin from the iv cefepime what are your uh, thoughts on this where are we going anything you want to share about that idea
1: yeah you know i think i think we are learning about the impact of the antibiotics in this population and so anything we can do to lighten the load of antibiotics is going to be, I think, a huge benefit. Um, These therapies do have an impact on frequency of disease, but they come at the consequence of the system's uh, emergence. The other thing that I think we don't fully appreciate, I mean, I think every stem cell patient we always, that we see in the hospital has significant edema and weight gains because of all the salt that we put into Mm-hmm. and so getting them off of uh, IV therapy and the volume and salt that is that I think will help their clinical recovery the other thing that I you know constantly wonder is how much of these fevers are really infections mm-hmm. First, uh, you know the underlying malignancy the engraftment or other things and uh, again yeah, I have learned for other populations that if you give antibiotics when they're not needed, that you don't get a lot of benefit, you get things like C. diff and uh, resistance and definitely an area of growth. And I think that colleagues, for example, in Melbourne are even pushing, do we even need the fluorophone loans uh, at okay. all for those uh, patients? Do we just need to monitor them very closely and see how they do? And then lastly, I think we are starting to get some data out of groups so like here at the University of Chicago and others that are showing that particularly when you have anti-anaerobic activity therapies, you may have uh, anticipated adverse outcomes in terms of the stem cell transplant itself. So not only are you challenging the patient in terms of resistance, but you may be stacking things against them in terms of their inability to fully recover from the stem cell transplant.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever been on antibiotics. I've only been on oral antibiotics, but they're not always fun. So if somebody doesn't absolutely need them. I think that it's a very welcome thing to go in the direction of finding out who actually needs them. Uh, I do know it's a controversial issue uh, in Europe. The uh, guidelines ECIL recommend that if somebody's been febrile and stable, regardless of neutropenia, the antibiotics can be stopped, providing they can be watched carefully in the US. The uh, guidelines are a little bit more restrictive, but I am seeing a little bit of a change. And some of it is, I think, brought also by venetoclax, people can have neutropenia for a long period of time and drug-drug interaction. So there is this movement to try to get patients off antibiotics despite persistent neutropenia.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think this is one of those opportunities uh, where we just need, what I'd love to see is, you know, that more data, you know, so clearly if you stop the antibiotics and people aren't dropping dead in Europe, then maybe we should be doing some of that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's continue with the case. So the neutropenia resolves. She's been doing well for several weeks. She remains on sirolimus or GVHD prophylaxis. And she contacts the clinic with an episode of sore throat and a dry cough. She's brought in and physical examination shows temperature to 100.8. The rest of her vital signs are not remarkable. Oxygen saturation is 95% on room air. A CT scan is done, which shows a tree in bud opacities in her lungs. Viral testing shows presence of parainfluenza. All the other viruses and all the other things that are done in the multiplex are negative. Her absolute neutrophil count is 1800s and the absolute lymphocyte count is 400. So we we come into decision point number two. Any antiviral agents that we could use for her? Uh, ribovarin is always like one of those things, like if you have an hour to spend, not necessarily going to make a lot of distance, but you can talk about ribovarin. We won't spend an hour, but any role?
1: Yeah. So I think you pick the... One of the most challenging and deadly viruses for this uh, population. Yet, I think in part because we really don't have anything that works Mm -hmm. available. Talk about some experimental therapies that are coming down the line. But, you know, the data, uh, you know, most of this is retrospective in nature, but IBIG and ribomerin really don't seem to improve outcomes. Patients. And again, I, you know, I think most people are using oral ribavirin because of cost and, and their ability to concentrate in sufficient quantities in the respiratory tract may not be even enough to uh, get to levels that would inhibit the virus in vitro. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't think of it, but ribavirin does have a toxicity to the patients. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Like, sometimes I think that's not appreciated because they're getting so many blood transfusions. People just don't realize, oh, they're at war because they're on this. Um, It's oftentimes used because people love doing something for patients, Mm -hmm. uh, even if the evidence is poor. But I really don't think that the evidence is there for IVH or ribavirin. Thankfully, you know, we have a phase three study of DAS-181 sialidase uh, that cleaves the receptor off the cells, preventing the virus from being able to infect the new cells and limiting the replication. The phase two study, had, you know, kind of mixed signals, really beneficial if someone was, you know, really lymphodepleted, really, you know, early in the clinical illness, which again, may like the patient to be presented. But, you know, the full primary endpoint really wasn't met in that study. And so whether or not it'll provide benefit down the road, I think we'll have to see. We need to do the studies uh, since it's an area of unmet. And hopefully, again, there are some drugs that are being developed that should have the activity against para virus. Uh, and hopefully they give us some more options, such as we have limited options at this point.
0: Great. All right. Now, this second part of the question depends on, it's one of those, where you stand depends on where you sit. So as we sit here, I'm going to have maybe an opinion, but if I'm actually seeing the patient, I may behave differently. So what do you think about giving this patient an antibacterial? And with full disclosure, patient gets admitted to the hospital like this, there's a very low chance that I'm not going to give this guy an antibiotic. An antibacterial but since we're sitting here from the safety of a conversation how do we feel about giving a patient like this who clearly has parainfluenza virus and no clear
1: evidence of an invasive bacterial infection and antibacterial yeah so you know it's i've come around to my thinking a little bit for all of these viral infections i do think that this is probably all the parainfluenza influenza virus and so there's really no role for antibiotics for those patients I think, as you pointed out, A, they won't be calling us until the next day to apply on this. Uh, So they're going to get started on antibiotics because that's just what happens uh, with these patients. And so I really wonder if our focus shouldn't be whether or not to make the decision to start therapy, uh, antibiotic therapy, while we're collecting the data on these patients, but having a plan to quickly pull them off of the antibiotics. One of the things that we found when we looked at our you know 10 years of data for flu, RSV, and per influenza virus is that huge proportion, I think it was 96% of patients get started on antibiotics on admission, mm-hmm. but sadly, almost half get discharged on antibiotics, even though they found no other cause of infection. And I see this in this patient population as well, like... They, you know, they get started on the antibiotics. Their CT really doesn't show anything. From a of pneumonia. Uh, all the blood cultures and CMVs and all the other things that get done on these patients are negative. The only thing you find is per-influenza uh, virus, and they still get sent home on an antibiotic that they probably don't. I think we need to do a better job of at that 24 to 48 hours as we get more data back when we're pretty clear that the person probably doesn't have a bacterial process to stop those antibiotics.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Again, sitting here in the safety of our conversation, I feel the same way when I'm at the uh, bedside. I often don't have the bravery to uh, to do that in mean, this patient population, but I do think that what you're saying is correct. Now, another aspect which uh, I've actually come around to being more aggressive myself is uh, the concept of fungal after viral and that it, it has been uh, well-described in immunocompromised patients and then tantalizing data from influenza, particularly in Europe, and then uh, the crushing amount of data, particularly in India, with the fungus after uh, COVID. How do you feel about an antifungal for this patient as sort of a chaser? A couple weeks, maybe longer? Obviously, data is going to be uh, very, very uh, sparse.
1: Yeah. So I do think that it's an area where we need more information. Mm-hmm. Uh You know, when we looked at our data for flu and RSV, looking specifically at fungal breakthrough infections, they almost all occur in our immunocompromised patients. So they weren't seen, uh, and other groups in North America have described this flu, that it's not this rip-roaring, raging disease in healthy patients like some of the Europeans have described, but it really is predominantly immunocompromised patients. And so it is something that I do think about, particularly if there's lower respiratory tract involvement in patients that are lung transplant patients or uh, patients that are severely lymphodepleted stem cell patients. I think the real question is, do we do kind of a upfront universal prophylaxis approach or is it something where we just serially monitor the patient very closely? And again, I think that's an approach that the Europeans tend to use. Um, and one that I think may be more beneficial in this population, because while they do occur, they're still pretty infrequent, even in our immunocompromised patients. And so figuring out which approach is optimal, I think, really needs uh, some further uh, research.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, I agree. I agree. And. I often look at phase three, randomized control trials as a formula one situation, like a formula. You need a racetrack that is extremely well prepared. They're very expensive, very splashy, and they can crash easily and cost you a ton of money, but they can also uh, perform exceptionally well. For this type of thing, I think a randomized trial is uh, something that can be done, whether it will be funded is another thing, but I think it can be done because I think the ground is prepared for that.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's an area where, as again, as we've learned with the pandemic, you've got to use different approaches. I, I actually think we could probably come up with a lot of data by you know a observational registry or you know mm-hmm. experience where we just look at because there's going to be variability. You know, some centers are going to maybe give universal prophylaxis and some will watch and wait. And so, in fact, you know, looking at those differences and what the outcomes are. While not as gold standard as a randomized placebo trial, could at least give us supporting information and drive for clinical care.
0: Yeah. I, I think that trials like you're describing can sometimes give better information than a randomized controlled trial. And it's not just that it's cheaper, but one of the things that infectious disease doctors can really stand to learn from oncologists is you look at an oncology trial where they look at, say, something like breast cancer, they're not going to do breast cancer chemotherapy versus no chemotherapy. They're going to be so much more sophisticated about the type of breast cancer, the stage of breast cancer, and where you come in with the intervention. And in infectious disease, I think we're starting to catch up a little bit, but we still do studies of do you have a low respiratory tract infection? Yes or no? Do we give you an antibiotic? Yes or no?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And honestly, I think even like very basic things, like everyone's still debating the role of ribovirus. Um mm-hmm. for those patients, you know, like let's get some quality data to look at outcomes i i I actually think back voice is there to do the randomized trial, but when that was attempted uh in the past for r s v for example, they just couldn't enroll and so again yeah. there's enough variability, uh, even in our own centers where I think you could compare Ribyron nobart ribyrons was there differences in outcomes probably not, yeah.
0: And and the power calculations in infectious disease can be challenging because of the uh, changing base of the disease. As you mentioned before, with COVID, doing a, a study for uh, endpoint of hospitalization, the power analysis early in the pandemic is quite different than it is now. Similar, whenever I have a patient with RSV, I tell them who's a bone marrow transplant, I, mean, I said, don't go on the internet because they're going to tell you that, that your chance of dying is extremely high. I haven't seen mortality like that in years. So... We need the preparatory data to know how to power the study as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and there is some of that data out there. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, the, there's two kind of scoring systems mm-hmm. by that was developed by the group at MD Anderson, uh, Roy Chamale's uh, group, and then another one that was developed in Basel by uh, Nina Kana and uh, Hans Hirsch's group that really... I find to be very useful in predicting outcomes for these uh, patients and I think does allow you to have better discussions, not only with the patient, but more for the team so that, you know, this is someone who's going to probably do fine or this is someone we need to keep a close eye on because they have risk of depression.
0: Yes. So these scoring systems are so important to identify patients, both for their educational purposes, the patients to say, okay, this is uh, where you fit in and then to to choose interventions and design studies.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: So as we uh, start moving toward wrapping up, I, the listeners can't see this, but I can see that your your background is a beautiful uh, skyline of uh, Chicago, and it's been over 40 minutes of us talking, and I haven't brought up baseball. So are
1: you a Cubs or a White Sox fan, or is there a third team involved? I will be disappointing you on this. I am not a baseball fan at all. Uh, I, I have been Prussian. to two or three games and was have never been as bored in my life. So I just, I'm not a baseball fan.
0: All right. Well, you, uh, you got saved the, also from having to take a, uh, a stand that would offend half of your city's
1: populations. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. So what do you do for fun? So my two favorite things, both of which have been constrained over the last two years is, uh, I love travel. I've been very lucky to uh, be invited to speak all over the world. And, you know, what I've, I've really appreciated from this is not only getting a better understanding of people and the cultures that they live in, but even in, in healthcare. I mean, I think things that we feel are essential or the only way to do things uh, in the United States are very different. It also makes me appreciate how lucky we are. I was just at a transplant meeting in Mexico. Their biggest challenge is they don't have access to web to eleven lab they don't mm-hmm. have every shell broadly available and so what can they do to help keep their patients uh, safe and you know what can we do to really advocate for their access to them? and then the second thing that I absolutely love, which unfortunately is demonstrated by my waistline is I love eating I, I love you know one of one of the things I'm definitely going to miss about Chicago is its thriving food scene got Uh, You know, anything from, you know, a un-Michelin-star hot dog joint to that's amazing to a, you know, three-Michelin-star restaurant that you're going to have things you have no idea what it is when they set it down in in front of you. You know, and even when I travel, I definitely look forward to trying new things and even how they interpret something that's much more traditional for another part of the world. Good news is there's a great food scene in uh, D.C., so I'm looking forward to discovering that as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there there is quite good food in uh, DC. I think Chicago is obviously one of the great food cities in the world. And with you having been to uh, to Mexico, I don't know if you were in Mexico City,
1: but that's supposed to also have some of the finest restaurants in the world. Yeah, it was in a smaller town, Aguas Caliente, but we had lunch at this very traditional restaurant that was absolutely to die for. I had this it was like an olive oil pepper and lemon salsa, that I've never even heard of it before, was the best discovery. It was so spicy, so bright. It really was absolutely
0: amazing. That sounds
1: fantastic.
0: So uh, with wrapping up, we're super excited to have you come to the Maryland, D.C. area. I'm sure you'll be very sad to leave Chicago with its many wonderful things. Probably not as sad in the middle of February, but welcome to uh, our area. Any uh, last things you want to talk about?
1: No, I, I yeah I do agree. I will miss the season changes, which you guys will have, but I will definitely not be missing the snow. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me, and really want to commend you on this incredible uh, podcast. It's a great venue for people in our uh, field, and and really an opportunity for this growing group of transphobic people to connect in kind of new and innovative ways. Thanks. I, I think it's
0: it's great because we have a chance to talk about things that are a little bit more subtle, like study design and like some of the aspects of transplant infectious disease that you might get. Uh, this is like a, a mini chance to round with you and talk about these things. Uh, but people around the world and there's over 50 countries that people listen to this can get a little slice of Mike Eisen and get a sense of how he thinks about problems. So appreciate that. Thank you so
1: much. Wonderful. Thanks.